Holly Sargent is my guest today on the Scholars Podcast. She's a 2021 Sir John Monash Foundation Scholar. She's studying for a PhD in law at Cambridge University in the UK. Her area of study is looking into the regulatory gaps in the applications of artificial intelligence in major financial institutions. Holly, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me, what's it like studying in the UK? <laughs> it is sometimes very surreal. Um, it's quite a privilege to be not just in a university, but also a university town that has yes. so much history. Um, it just sort of feels like every now and then I catch myself walking down a particular street and going, oh, that's where I'm in Alan Jones' office was. I'm in Cambridge. Um, oh, look at, you know, these colleges and the people that have been here and, you know, the centuries of academia that has, you know, started from here. It's really quite an incredible experience. I do keep pinching myself. So when did you, when did you get to Cambridge? Was that, that was last year? I did, yeah. So I arrived in October, just when we weren't quite sure what COVID was going to do. And I thought, look, let's just give it a go. Let's see how the yeah. first year plans out. And um, yeah, well, I, I like that. <laughs> four weeks after I arrived in Cambridge, we went into a lockdown for all of November. We came out for me to have um, a very lovely Christmas with some new friends in Cambridge. And then mm. I've had a long, long 2021 with... Uh, a long lockdown here in the UK, which has uh, just been lifted in the past few weeks. I was going to ask you about that. So we've seen the headlines and the news footage of everyone essentially breaking free, Freedom Day across Freedom Day. across England. So what's that been like? Bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's such a strange time because... Obviously, I've been here through such a period that I almost feel desensitised to some of the numbers and statistics, which I think are horrifying to most Australians. Mm, yeah. So it's a very difficult experience to cross from especially Australia to the UK. Um, I feel very fortunate to be double vaccinated, which perhaps make me more oh, comfortable yeah. going out this week, That's despite right. a lot of people not wearing masks. Mm. But at the same time, I think it's interesting to see that even though the government has removed these restrictions, most businesses and citizens are still behaving as they have for the past few months. Most people are wearing masks. Most people are social distancing. I think we've been lucky with some very lovely weather for the last few weeks, which has helped most people staying outside and trying to do the right thing, but yeah. a very different approach to uh, to the lockdowns. But as you go around the, the university town and the campus, are, are things all open and sort of back to normal? Yeah, very much so. Although because it's summertime here at the moment, it's uh, much fewer students than there would ordinarily be. And you mm. can see a few more tourists trickling back in. So the punts have been busy and a lot more walking groups going around than usual. But of course, most of the postgraduate students are still here, especially the many Australians who have been stranded. So it's always nice to have a strong network of other Australian PhDs around to keep us company. So plenty of Aussies there, right? Many, yes. Sometimes you can hear the accents. Uh, <laughs> it does stand out when you're overseas. It does. Start, I've never paid so much attention. <laughs> so tell us about your studies What and, um, and your PhD. What's it all about? So 
Essentially, I was really interested in looking at what's the right approach to regulating new technologies. Um, There's obviously so many potential benefits from all different types of new technology. It extends everything from blockchain, you know, connected devices, connected vehicles, but all of it seems to circle back to machine learning and artificial intelligence, Mm -hmm. increased use of algorithms in predominantly decision-making is where my main area of interest is. So where do we start to try and use more computational systems to make the decisions that humans have been making for decades or longer? Because in many cases that can make systems more efficient, we can make processes more efficient, but of course it can also exacerbate existing biases and continue to replicate structural inequality. So I was most interested in looking at something that had a really prominent use case where it's currently being used and will only continue to be used, which I was interested in financial services. So I think most of us are fairly comfortable with the fact that banks have been very early adopters of technology. Um, You know, everything from even just moving to internet banking as quickly as they did to now almost predominantly mobile banking. Yes. But that's moving really quickly with them also using different types of algorithmic systems to either credit score, determine interest rates for different consumers, analyze their applications for home loans or other financial products. And these are applications that many people will make over the course of their lives mm. and may not be aware of the fact that AI is being used in these decisions. They would they would have no idea, Holly. No idea. No idea. And I think the thing that is quite worrying to many people is mainly not understanding even if they do know that AI is being used, not understanding how it works and what information is being used. I think people are very comfortable with technology as a part of our lives but don't realise the extent to which data is collected and used by private companies. And that I think is a really scary thing as a society that we need to try and grapple with and also something from a personal perspective to say what am I comfortable with my bank actually knowing about me based on my social media profile or something of the sort so that's kind of the the framing to what I wanted to look at for my master project it's amazing you know you you mentioned data I would say that most people would have no idea what happens behind the scenes at a bank that happens to have your personal financial banking information. We're just going yeah. to presume that it's there and they w- it won't be abused. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the difficulty with private companies is that we sort of have different expectations of the way that governments work and mm. private companies. But banks really know so much about our personal lives. We entrust a lot with them. Accessing finance is a huge part of our lives, whether it's through mortgages or loans for cars or even just our normal credit cards and overdrafts. Everyone needs them at a certain point in their life. So actually, if AI goes wrong, it can have a massive effect on people's ability to access finance. And I think the importance is that there isn't really an incentive for banks to discriminate and it's never ordinarily the intention of private companies to exploit that data other than to try and make better products and more efficient outcomes and systems but the problem of deploying such complex 
And very quickly changing technologies is that it can go wrong very quickly without having really comprehensive understanding of it. Will part of your study look at how open banking, certainly in Australia, uh, has the potential to uh, change um, the market? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why, you know, finance is such a fascinating area to explore because the regulation is shifting very quickly uh, in trying to look at new ways to try and connect information and data. And as you say, with the Open um, Banking Initiative, is actually going to really change the way that that information is shared across financial institutions. How did you go about um, finding a, um, a supervisor for your PhD in, um, in artificial intelligence? I imagine that's it's quite niche, I would think. How, um, <laughs> how did that come about? It is quite niche and, uh, you know, Cambridge is an incredible institution, but I think one, because of its its age and its calibre, tends to operate in many silos. So while there are a lot of incredible um, researchers and sub-centres within Cambridge, there are only a couple of professors that are quite specifically looking at law and AI. And in fact, you know, finding my supervisor was very fortunate for me to find someone who had exactly the right expertise to supervise me, but also very willing to let me run off with my idea. And run that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Move fast, try and break some things and see how they worked, which has been fantastic. And I also, um, so my supervisor naturally sits within the, the law faculty, but I've also made quite a few good connections with professors in the computer science faculty as well. Uh, my two advisors are both computer scientists, one here at Cambridge and one at Uppsala University in Sweden. So I think one of the incredible things about Cambridge is the network that it has, which mm. makes it much easier to try and explore something interdisciplinary, um, different methods. And I think that's the thing is that so many academics go, yes, absolutely, it's important. And there are so many different avenues to look at it that even the academics I do know who are investigating, you know, regulating AI can come at it from so many different angles, whether they're looking at it from the impact on children, the impacts of social media, the impact on politics. I've been working on projects from anything, trying to predict election outcomes based on polling data through to... That's very helpful is- information if you can <laughs> nail that. I know it's been quite a fun one to look at, actually, because everyone seems to think because I research AI and they think I'm I'm very techie that I believe all of these things are going to work. And sometimes I'm the biggest skeptic in the team. And we're doing one recently where all these computer scientists are saying, you know, yeah, yeah, of course we can predict the outcomes of cases. And I went, have you have you read some of the way that judges write? There's a real <laughs> there's a real nuance to that that might be tricky to pick up in natural language processing. So sometimes I can really bring a sceptical mind to it. I think that's helpful in some ways. Mm. But, of course, looking at things from all those different angles and building that network with many different academics helps me view my research more broadly as well, trying not to ever be too siloed into what I want my project to look like and being open to suggestions and other ways of thinking about things, which I suppose is the luxury of a PhD. (laughs) Of course, and and why Cambridge? You you had when you won the the scholarship, you had the opportunity to pick any institution on the planet. Um, what was it that made you decide upon Cambridge? 
I mean, a, a pretty overwhelming thing for someone to say, where would you like to study? Mm. Um, as, you know, especially with the backing of something like um, the John Monash Foundation. I think Cambridge for me has always sort of had a bit of, there's sort of a bit of awe surrounding it. Um, I did an exchange in my second year of my undergraduate to London and remember coming out to Cambridge for two days and just thinking this place is incredible. You, that there's a real feeling here um, and there's something obviously beautiful about the town, but then at so many points I've realised that many of the journal articles, books, research work that I've been reading has been coming out of Cambridge. So there's always sort of been this undertone of affinity for coming back here if I could. Um, I especially think the connection from Australia to the UK is very strong, which made that a natural choice for me. Very similar legal system, very similar culturally as well. And so I think UK always stood out for those few reasons. So if it all goes to plan, fingers crossed, when will you finish your PhD? So I'm sure my supervisor would like me to finish in 2023. I keep telling him that we have to think that a COVID year is a write-off, so I'd like to push for 2024. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And then what Then what happens after that? Who knows? Well, yes, sometimes I think that um, doing the PhD is just... Um, a wonderful way to postpone making that decision for three years. <laughs> but uh, but when I think seri- more seriously about it, the other beauty of the PhD is that I get to do a lot of um, other projects along the way. So even in the past year, I've done work with the OECD and um, other research projects as well as some other European organisations, which helps me sort of see you know, where are the different ways that I could go and work in this? Could I go into policy? Could I go into legal regulation? Could I go back into legal practice? Um, is always tempting because I think while I am fascinated by the technology, I'm not a technologist. Mm. I don't code and I don't do the data science. Um, so I think there's a real place for me to go either back into the companies or back into the law firms and be in an advisory capacity to help them understand the best way to implement AI for them and the best way to do so in a way that complies with the right regulatory um, obligations and even where those regulatory obligations don't actually exist, say, well, where's the right ethical position for our company to take on doing the right thing with people's data, especially their consumers? So what was it that first made you interested in this topic area, Holly? Actually, it was a bit of a long road. Um, I sort of always seem to think that there's just these sort of nudges in the right direction. So um, I think I've always been interested in sort of a human rights, social justice perspective, even Mm. from when I was young and thought perhaps human rights or some kind of social policy or politics would be the right place for me. Wasn't ever quite sure what that looked like and had an incredible opportunity actually when I was towards the end of high school in Australia and my school nominated me to go and work with UNICEF as an ambassador for a year, which was amazing at the time and really my first exposure to lawyers and legal work and the difference between you know, politics and social policy to what are legal obligations, especially human rights or child rights at the time. Is that why you were were still at high school? Yes, yes. That was the end of high school. And then I continued working with them and mentoring the next young ambassadors for most of university. 
which was an amazing program that they run and I still try and support as much as I can because I think it's an incredible way for, you know, if you want to enforce child rights, you need to have children involved. Mm. And that was the premise of the program, which really helped me understand the importance of the way that the law functions. And I think that would have been one of my rare opportunities, you know, from a family where we didn't know lawyers and didn't know that career path to then say, actually, maybe this is something that I should give a go, not knowing whether I'd be a lawyer or not, but thought, oh, I should study this. This is obviously um, an area of interest. And I ended up studying law and thinking, wow, this is it. This is, I'm in the right place. I'm doing the right thing. It was mm. a relief for anyone in their undergrad. <laughs> and so where, where, where did you grow up? Where, where did you, and where did you uh, go to high school and, go to your first university? Um, So I'm really Queensland through and through. I was born in Rockhampton Mm -hmm. and lived lived in Rockhampton for a couple of years as a kid and then across Ipswich but mainly grew up in Bundaberg, Mm. um, which was a lot of fun to grow up sort of 30 minutes out of town, surrounded by, yes, Bundaberg sugar and, yes, near Bundaberg (laughs) rum. (laughs) (laughs) I was tempted to ask you about Bundaberg rum. Everyone always asks and uh, yeah. I always reply, it's like, yes, the smell of molasses is still in the stuff. It's great. And so, but really like reached a point in, in Bundaberg where as much as we sort of loved the country life, my parents were um, quite strong supporters of public education and went, you know what, I think there are some, some bigger and some more exciting opportunities for schooling elsewhere. So we moved um, to southeast Queensland, we were on the Gold Coast for me to do high school. And okay. yep. it's a hard place to leave because uh, the Gold Coast is really such a beautiful place and I had the opportunity to have a scholarship to stay and go to Bond University, which oh. was fantastic and I loved being at Bond. And is that that's where you, you first studied law? Was it law? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So I studied law and international relations, bachelor's, and... During that experience, it was becoming clearer how important technology would be for sort of our generation of law graduates. Probably isn't where it is now because it genuinely has moved so quickly in the last few years. Um, just trying to keep pace with how quickly technology is being deployed. And I got to my final year and had a, another sort of very fortunate turn of events to be able to study on a new Colombo Plan scholarship in Singapore. So if there's anywhere where technology is advancing faster than anywhere else, I think it might be Singapore. Mm-hmm. So that was a great exposure to uh, perhaps a more advanced legal technology market. And I was able to do some work there with the legal regulator who was looking at how they could improve the connections between different startups and tech companies and law firms to try and create a real environment for legal innovation in Singapore. And that's really where all of this started for me, where sort of the human rights that I'd always been interested was connecting with this really new and interesting emerging area that I could also see um, very few people comparatively to other areas of law uh, had experience in. So you tell us more about that experience. What was it like in um, in Singapore and, and working um, as a new Colombo Plan Scholar? I loved Singapore. I thought it was a fantastic 
place. I have so many friends there. Uh, of course, COVID has thrown a spanner in, in many of the plans, but I try to go back often to visit. And so I studied at NUS for my final semester of my undergraduate, which was a great place to meet some new friends and, and sort of see an exposure to a different type of culture and different way of studying, um, incredibly hardworking and really inspiring group of people that I met at NUS. And that was where I was connected with the regulator, the Singapore Academy of Law. And that was actually a very fun experience and quite different to, I think, what a lot of working in Singapore would have looked like. I worked in a, a co-working space in kind of a startup environment because we were working with startups yeah. quite regularly, yeah. which was great. Um, so the very trendy side of Singapore, which I do love, but at the same time learning sort of the intricacies of the culture and the different ways of working and the different approaches because we're often interviewing and meeting with people in the old law firms and, and banks just as much as we were with the sort of brand new legal tech startups. It was really interesting. And, of course, I just missed the food. And <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I Incredible. Incredible. I always have a list whenever I go back. I'm like, right. You'd know all the good sneaky places to go to. I, I, think, I think I do. I think I did a pretty good survey of the different hawker centres and um, different markets. So, where, Holly, where have you lived overseas? Obviously, Singapore, now England, anywhere else? Yeah. Uh, no. So, I've lived in England before. Um, yeah, so okay. I'm back here, uh, which I think is a good review, which everyone always asks me why. <laughs> and after a winter here, I go, I'm not sure. But <laughs> now, there's, it's something funny about the way they trap you with an English summer because it really is quite lovely and just makes you forget uh, the seven hours of sunlight you get in the middle of winter. What about the Bundaberg summer, though? Oh, I do sometimes miss it. And I was trying to explain to one of my friends here in the UK and I said, you know, I know it's embarrassing that I'm Australian and I'm a little too warm in 29 degrees Celsius. <laughs> I was trying to explain, I was like, but in Bundaberg, you know, it gets hot, but it storms every night of summer. <laughs> Yes. And sometimes I, I really do feel the longing for that kind of hot, long, hot day and then the bucketing rain that comes that night. You know, there is really a feel for different places in Australia and I think, you know, central Queensland has really got that that constant heat and then constant extremes in weather, which sometimes I do miss. Now, what about your, um, your downtime, Holly? How do you like to <laughs> relax and what are some of your hobbies? Well, I mean, lockdown has made me pursue a whole bunch of things I'd never thought were hobbies. I've tried knitting, I've tried pottery, <laughs> cooking, which I think is, uh, you know, one of my friends asked if that was a cry for help a couple of months ago, which maybe yeah. it was. <laughs> we need to do something about Holly. We need to do something about that, um, which I think, you know, for me is my struggle in trying to find new things to do in the UK, especially UK during winter and a lockdown, because in Australia, my hobbies are always to be outdoors, mm. it's to be surfing, it's to be at the beach, it's to be hiking. But I'm slowly exploring some new parts of the UK. There is um, some lovely meadows. I've been doing a bit of, they call it wild swimming here, which I'm enjoying. Okay. It's just swimming in streams so it's no Gold Coast beach yeah. but it is quite a nice way to get out and see more of the countryside here mm. um, and make the most of the lovely weather while we have it. I've got a note here saying that you play the cello and the flute. 
Yes. I play neither. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about well, that. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately it was a little diff- too difficult to get a cello from Australia to the UK this time around. So I've I've borrowed one a couple of times while I'm here just to keep playing. Um, but I'm going to try and find a way in the next year to to play a little bit more formally because I do miss it. Music's always been a very big part of my life, and you know I think it was something that I loved for the social element. You know, it's such a great way to meet people and. You know, the cello is kind of a funny instrument that my parents always thought, it's not a solo instrument, why would you play that? <laughs> yeah, what, what is going on there? Yeah, so what's going it, on there? Um, Is it possible to make a comparison between studying at a university in Australia to one, say, in England? Like what, what, are, what are some of the noticeable differences? Mm. There are more sim- similarities than I think you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um you know, student culture seems to be almost universal in some ways. Even in studying in Singapore, there's just, you know, so many jokes about the dysfunction of students living away from home, which I do always think are rather funny. But I think there's a real, um, Cambridge especially has a very competitive culture, um, which is talked about quite a lot, um, despite efforts, very good efforts, I would say, to make very egalitarian. I think in Australia, where perhaps better at the balance. I think Australian universities very pu- push very hard for round, well-rounded students. Mm-hmm. You know, really, Australian universities have a great way of saying your sport, your volunteering, your internships, your part-time work, your music are all important parts of studying. And I think in the UK, because the years tend to be a little bit shorter and more condensed, the terms here are shorter, that those things are left for hobbies for the summer. And okay. yeah. when university is on, it's it's a very intense time. I'm actually supervising next year, which I'm looking forward to very much. I'll mm. be supervising company law students, which is different at Cambridge than it is in Australia. So they have lectures like we ordinarily would, but then rather than tutorials or seminars, they have what they call supervisions, which is um, one or two, perhaps three students in a group. So it's very um, personalised teaching, which mm-hmm. I actually think is a really intimidating for me to be a supervisor, but I think will be very... You've got to be on your game, Holly. I know. It's a lot of pressure, actually. <laughs> mm. um, a lot of pressure to, uh, to give personalised teaching, but also I think a great opportunity because it means that students get a better connection with their, their teachers more personalised teaching I think is important and makes a lot of sense when you compare it to I think perhaps I'm not the best person to compare to because Bond is a very small university and I had quite small tutorials. Mm. But, you know, with friends who went to universities in Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney, of course, we're in seminars of upwards of 50 people quite regularly and could feel okay. a little bit nervous. So that's that's quite a different approach that Cambridge takes. Would you ever consider a, a career in full-time academia as a as a teacher, a supervisor? I think so. Um, I And this is an ongoing challenge that I have and, of course, came up in my interviews for the, the scholarship. Thankfully, everyone's very patient with me, but um, sometimes they're not. <laughs> Even my I'll professor be, be me sometimes yep. is like, could you please just choose... <laughs> Yeah, because um, 
Exactly. And I'm like, can't I be a part-time academic and a part-time lawyer? I'm sure I'll figure it out somehow. But I think there's a lot to be said for the benefits of the academic life. I, I love teaching. I think it's a really rewarding experience. And I think it's um, I think it's such a good way to understand your own work. If it can't be explained to your average person, it, I don't think that it's at the standard that it should be because it's it's there to be understood by everyone. And at the same time, that gives you a lot of freedom to do other work like I'm able to do at the moment. I'm able to do part-time work and research assistance and consulting work elsewhere that I wouldn't be able to do in another role. So that's a very tempting, very tempting approach for me. I do think Australia also balances that better. I think Australia has a lot of um, academics who also work in industry, whereas I think um, at a place like Cambridge, most professors um, and most university staff would tend to be full-time academics. Mm. Great answer. Well, Holly, it's been fantastic talking with you today. Uh, Enjoy your freedom in England while large parts of Australia are locked down. Good luck with your PhD and all the very best in the years ahead. We will be following your career with much interest. All the best and thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.